Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Alex, one half of Cryptid Queens, and I am here again to give you a solo episode. Caitlin is busy studying for the LSATs so she could get into law school and start her attorney journey. Yeah, I just wanted to, you know, cover a story that I've been wanting to cover for a very long time, but haven't had the chance to because it's technically not just one location. And this is usually the time that I get to do it is when I am recording alone because nothing happens in my life and I'm always available to do this, but Caitlin is a little busier than I am. So yeah, without further ado, I'm just going to get into what I'm covering. And if you hear any weird noises in the background, um, Sylvie has the zoomies and she has been a little bit of a menace lately. I'm doing cold case missing persons reports in America's national parks. So I'm going to start out with my sources here, theculturetrip.com, science.com, trailandsummit.com, top10s.net, listverse.com, and strangeoutdoors.com. So if you're familiar with the world of strange phenomena, I'm sure you have at least heard of the missing persons cases that occur in our national parks. Since records began in 1916, there have been approximately 1,600 or more people that have gone missing without a trace. So out of all the national parks in America, Grand Canyon National Park has the most disappearances with 785 SAR incidents between 2018 and 2020 alone. SAR is search and rescue. A close second is Yosemite National Park with 732 SAR incidents during the same time frame. Of course, some of the cases of missing persons can be explained by tragic accidents that are inherent risks of exploring the outdoors, such as getting attacked by an animal, falling from the peak of a mountain, or being exposed to extreme weather. Also, take into account how large these parks are and the amount of people that visit each year. Even so, some of these cases have extremely mysterious circumstances, and it's left a lot of people, including myself, pretty damn baffled. Cryptozoologist, former police detective, and author of the Missing 411 series and documentary, David Polides decided to dedicate much of his time to work on these cold cases. He began compiling and sifting through what data he could collect to look for trends and found some compelling observations. Polides was particularly interested in cases where people appeared to simply vanish into thin air, He noticed that in many of these cases, there were rescue dogs brought in to investigate the disappearances who either could not or would not perform their typical duties. So there is one particular thing that this man is famous for, and he believes that Bigfoot is the reason for these disappearances, and they could be potential evidence for these creatures' existence. Others point to the Wendigo, which is an evil spirit from Algonquin folklore that I covered way back in our Minnesota episode. It's a great one. The Wendigo is actually my favorite cryptid. Most people, according to his data, disappear in the late afternoon and during or just before severe weather. Bodies are often found in previously searched areas and often without clothing or footwear, even when hypothermia has been ruled out. So there is this thing called paradoxical undressing. And that basically means that when you're in the late stages of hypothermia, when you're freezing to death, your body all of a sudden tells you that you are really, really hot. 
And this causes people to take off all of their clothes. So a lot of the times you'll see these hypothermia victims naked or almost naked because of the paradoxical undressing that happens. It is a wild phenomena. Back to the story, children are sometimes found at improbably far distances from where they went missing. I feel like it's also necessary to note that David's credibility has come into question throughout the years, but I thought it was an interesting point and kind of necessary to bring up since he helped bring a lot of these cases to light, and there's been a lot of web sleuthing involved, as you can imagine. Now I'm going to go into these cold cases, and a lot of them are pretty damn crazy. And these are some of my favorite ones that I found. Trigger warning, some of these stories involve children. So just wanted to let you guys know, because I know that's kind of a boundary for some people. In 1999, a three-year-old boy named Jared Atadero was living with his sister and father, Alan, at the resort Jared's dad worked at in the Comanche Wilderness. And this is actually a national park in Colorado. So this is very odd. A Christian singles group was staying at the resort, and one of the women in the group offered to take Alan's kids with them for a few hours to a local fish hatchery. They never asked Alan if they could take the children hiking as well, but they saw a sign for a nearby trail and decided at the last minute that they would go through the forest. The Christian singles, as they were called, were so involved in their own hikes that they actually lost track of the boy Jared and he wandered away from the group. Two hikers in the area saw him walking alone, but assumed his parents must be nearby. After this, he was never seen again. In 2003, however, two hikers climbed up a very steep rock face roughly 550 feet above the trail. They found one child's tooth, a piece of skull, and Jared's clothes, which were fully intact. They had been taken off his body and turned inside out. And then there was one shoe that looked completely brand new. And mind you, this is four years after this boy went missing. The area where his remains were found was far too difficult for a child to climb to himself, and it would have been an unnecessarily difficult location for an adult kidnapper to carry him. It also doesn't line up with a bear or a cougar attack pattern because the clothes would have been ripped off and covered in blood. The Atadero family is still haunted by the unanswered questions. So the second story is that it was Father's Day weekend in 1969. Six-year-old Dennis Martin was at Smoky Mountains National Park with his brother, father, and grandfather. They camped out for the night, and the next day, a man approached Mr. Martin asking if his sons wanted to play with his kids since they were about the same age. Dennis's father agreed, and the children started a big game of hide-and-seek. Dennis's father kept his eyes on his son from a distance, and Dennis hid behind a tree, and when the other kids jumped to reveal themselves, Dennis did not. His father got up and ran over to where he had last seen his son, but he was gone. The Appalachian Trail was nearby, so he ran at full speed for two miles, yelling and calling for Dennis, but he couldn't find his son. They called park rangers and spent all night looking for him. Their search for Dennis Martin actually became massive, and the FBI, the Green Berets, park rangers, and local volunteers searched for six weeks. The only thing they found belonging to Dennis was one shoe and one sock, and they never found the body. Polites conducted interviews and dug through files with testimonies about this case. Another family had been camping in the park that same weekend, and they asked park rangers where they could go to see bears. They were told where to go, 
And when they arrived, they reported hearing a scream. The child pointed at the top of the hill, saying that he saw a bear. The father said it looked more like a scary-looking, wild, hairy mountain man dodging behind trees while carrying something over its shoulder. So this story in particular is one that David thinks is Bigfoot. The next story is, in 1952, this is the last one about a child, a two-year-old boy named Keith Parkins went missing from his home in Ritter, Oregon in the middle of winter. He had been playing outside with his jacket on, but he was far from equipped to spend the night outside alone. His family and a local search party looked for him immediately. They could follow his tiny footprints up to a point before they completely stopped. There were no other animal or adult tracks in the area. 19 hours later, they found Keith. He was about 15 miles away. He had taken his jacket off and was laying face down in the snow on a frozen pond. But Keith was alive. When they asked him why he had run away and how he survived, he said he didn't remember. This is 15 miles away as a two-year-old in the middle of winter. The survival expert named Les Stroud, who is Survivor Man, who I'm a big fan of. He actually filmed a segment for the Missing 411 documentary to demonstrate just how impossible it would have been for two-year-old Keith to walk so far on his own, especially at night. To this day, no one is sure exactly how Keith survived the night, and we may never know. So this next story is particularly crazy, and it's one of my favorites. Well, (laughs) you know what I mean. (laughs) In February 2018, a Canadian man named Danny Philippides was on a ski trip with his friends in New York. It was around 2 p.m. and they had been skiing for hours. They were getting ready to go into the lodge and Danny said that he wanted to go on one more run down the mountain before their lunch break. By 4 p.m., Danny was failing to return any calls or texts and the friends were getting very concerned. They began searching for him, and after being unable to find him, they told the employees at the lodge that he was missing. A team of 130 people scored the mountain without finding him. Six days later, Philippides' wife received a phone call. She didn't recognize the number, and it sounded far away and staticky. It was Danny. He was incoherent and confused, and then hung up the phone. She called the number back and pleaded with him to call 911 for help, so he did. He had no idea where he was, and he just described his surroundings. When the paramedics finally found him, he was still wearing all of his ski gear and in need of medical assistance. He was holding a brand new iPhone, and someone had cut his hair. Somehow, he ended up in Sacramento, California, at the airport terminal car rental depot. He was three thousand miles away from where he disappeared. He couldn't remember how he got there and he had no idea what day it was. When he learned where he was and how long people had been looking for him, he got really overwhelmed and emotional. The leading theory is that he was kidnapped in the back of a big rig truck, but no proof of this has ever surfaced. So this next one is also one of my favorites. A 24-year-old man named Stephen Kubaki was cross-country skiing through the snow near Lake Michigan. Once he reached the edge of the lake, he took his skis off to sit down and rest. When he got up to leave, his own tracks were gone and he became lost. The last thing he remembers was walking through the snow feeling numb and exhausted. He blacked out and in the blink of an eye, 
it was spring. He was lying in a grassy field in the middle of a forest wearing clothes that weren't his. Sitting next to him was a stranger's backpack containing running shoes and glasses that did not belong to him either. He hiked to the nearest town and asked a local resident where he was. They told him he was in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, 700 miles away from where he had been skiing. His aunt and father actually lived in Pittsfield, so he knocked on his aunt's door. His family was in shock, hugging him and asking where he had been. Kubaki had been missing for 14 months. When Kubaki had first gone missing, the search team found his poles and skis at the edge of the lake. There was only one set of his footprints leading towards the water, but none walking away. They could only assume he drowned himself in the freezing lake, and he had been missing for so long, everyone assumed that he had passed away. The official explanation is that he had amnesia, but even doctors are completely baffled by this case. It's incredibly rare for someone to lose their memory of such a huge chunk of time, and it still leaves so many unanswered questions. His story was actually included in a psychology case study in a book about amnesia, but even experts have been unable to figure out what actually happened to this man. What's really crazy about this story is that Kubaki had already earned a degree in linguistics before he went missing, and he was so fascinated by his own case that he actually went on to earn his PhD in psychology. He wanted answers about his own disappearance, and yet he still couldn't find them. Solving the mystery of his missing year became an obsession, and he went on to publish a book called Metamathematical Foundations of Existence, Godel, Quantum, God, and Beyond. In it, he writes about the possibility of alternate universes. So this next story is a little bit longer, but it's worth it. I was researching a lot of these cases, and this one seemed to be one of the more popular ones. Um, so here it goes. 39-year-old Dr. James Jim McGrogan was visiting Vail, Colorado in March 2014, which was a small town at the base of Vail Mountain in the center of the huge ski resort set within the White River National Forest. It's about two hours away from me. On the morning of March 14th, 2014, at about 8.30 a.m., Jim and three hiking companions left on the nine-mile hike to the Iceman Hut and beyond to Camp Hale. The camp is basically a collection of huts deep in the mountains to serve as a temporary shelter for hikers or campers. The site was originally built in the 1940s as the home of the 10th Mountain Division and a mountain warfare training area. At the time, there was a lot of snow, several feet deep in some areas. There are two main routes from the Vale area to Eisman Hut, one via Spraddle Creek and a more westerly route via Red Sandstone Creek. It's not clear which route the group took, but both were used heavily and were well marked with compacted snow. Although the hut was only four miles from the group's starting point and right near U.S. Interstate 70, the hike itself was up a meandering nine-mile trail through steep and treacherous wooded terrain, and the hut is not considered easy to reach. Although it was to be a challenging hike, McGrogan and company were experienced with the outdoors and well-prepared. McGrogan himself carried with him a cell phone, basic medical supplies, a sleeping bag, Avalanche beacon, GPS, warm clothing, and plenty of food and water. So this guy was prepared. So about 
10 a.m., with the hiker still about five miles from the hut, the group stopped to rest. According to his companions, Jim decided to hike on ahead of the party, and they expected to catch up with him along the way. After Jim left the others behind to hike on alone, he vanished. When the rest of the group reached the Eisman hut, it was late afternoon on March 14th, and there was no sign at all of McGrogan. He was never seen alive again. By 5.30 p.m., the hikers had notified the Vail Department of Public Safety and subsequently the Eagle Valley Sheriff's Department. A rescue operation was started over an 18-square-mile area. McGrogan was well-equipped, so the authorities were not too concerned. Like I said, he had food, water, GPS, snow beacon, warm clothing. He was also carrying a split snowboard, which is basically a snowboard that you can split into skis. So you can skin up a mountain and then snowboard down it. It's pretty cool. And he was also wearing the boots that went with the board. So McGrogan's cell phone pinged once the day he went missing. But after that, it went completely silent. Over the next three days, teams of searchers on foot, snowmobile, and three helicopters from the National Guard's high-altitude aviation training site based in nearby Gypsum, Colorado, searched the area. But by Tuesday, March 18th, bad weather forced the search to be suspended. Crews had spent a combined 1,000 hours searching for McGrogan. A five-day search failed to find any sign of him despite snow in the area, which would have indicated if someone was hiking or skiing off-trail. Twenty days later, McGrogan's body was found by a group of backcountry skiers about four and a half miles from the trail on April 3rd, 2014, near the Booth Falls area, way to the east of Iceman Hut. So the reporting party told authorities that he and two others were skiing the Booth Falls area, where they located the dead body in an ice fall below Booth Falls, laying on top of an ice sheet. And an ice fall is basically, it's a frozen waterfall, which flows down. It's great to ice climb on. He was found wearing his helmet, no coat, no gloves, and no boots. His backpack and his cell phone were discovered. And in this area, there appeared to be active cellular reception. Jim's snowboard was also found nearby, but his boots were never located. On April 7th, Eagle County Coroner Kara Bedis said that James McGrogan died of multiple injuries, including head and chest trauma and a broken femur. So his death was ruled an accident. What happened to Dr. Jim McGrogan on March 14th is still a mystery. He hiked 12 to 14 miles across the backcountry in deep snow, and apparently lost his boots. Perhaps he did succumb to paradoxically undressing, like I was mentioning earlier, but why didn't he use his cell phone or GPS tracker, both of which were fully functional? Why did he become separated from his hiking group and decide to leave on his own? There's so many questions about this case, and none of them really make sense. Honestly, it reminds me, all of these stories actually remind me of the Dyatlov Pass incident. Nature in the outdoors is not forgiving. It's not merciful. I've always learned that it's neutral. It'll do whatever it wants, whatever it wants, and you have absolutely no control over it. So what you need to do is be prepared for every instance. But just like McGrogan, he was very prepared and no one knows what happened. So when I talk about these cases, I'm not taking it lightly. I realize that these are real people with real lives and there's people who love them. And I, I can't even imagine 
what their loved ones went through and continue to go through. I actually found myself going through pages and pages of lists of these missing people. They were put into categories of still missing, found deceased, found alive, found murdered. And it really took me to a place where I could have been one of these people. I've spent a incredibly massive amount of time in the wilderness and consider it a sanctuary. I can only imagine what was going through these people's minds the moment they realized the terrain looked unfamiliar or they stepped off the wrong cliff. It's absolutely terrifying. And the fact that a lot of people have lived to tell the tale is just incredible to me. Obviously, a very famous story is of Aaron Ralston when he got his arm stuck under a rock in a canyon in Utah and had to literally cut his way out. It's a crazy story and he survived. But there are also people that don't get talked about that are just as brave. To go back to the Bigfoot theory, (laughs) I don't comfortably rest my hat on any of these cryptid theories, since I don't want to perpetuate false stories regardless of how I feel about them. If my loved one went missing and was never found, I don't know how I would feel about people claiming that they were taken by Bigfoot. (laughs) Me, personally, I would see that as disrespectful, and that's the last thing that I want to be. But Then again, it's unsolved, so people will come up with all the theories imaginable, especially if the circumstances are especially odd. Anyway, these were just a handful of the compelling stories I came across, and I really hope this at least taught some lessons about going out into the wilderness, including tell people where you're going before you leave, bring some type of GPS locator, especially if you're by yourself, know your abilities and your limits and the weather and all of that stuff and to not fall into these decision traps that we get ourselves into. That is the missing 411 cases, and that is just a handful of those cases that I picked. Thank you guys so much for listening. I know this was a short one. I'm really excited for the next few episodes coming up. Can't promise that Caitlin will be a part of them, but I will be having some guests on, and it's going to be great. I'm, I'm really excited about the future of this podcast. Really, I love it. I've always loved it. I'm I'm a nerd and I love researching and so does Caitlin. And yeah, thank you guys so much for coming with us on this journey. Um, If you want to ask us a question or just say hi, you can email us at cryptidqueenspodcast at gmail.com. You can go on Instagram at cryptidqueenspodcast. And if you want to donate or leave us a tip so we can continue to pay our (laughs) podcast host website. Um, If you go to the link in our bio on our Instagram, there'll be a little button that says leave a tip and you can send us, you know, money for a coffee or something. We'd really appreciate it. And um, we don't get paid for this. This is what we do because we love it. And um, yeah, love you guys so much and keep your eyes peeled, queens.